Welcome to No Ordinary, Ordinary women. women, the podcast where two ordinary broads talk about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and, and the, the bad shit crazy. Hey, Rose. Hey, Lynn. How was your week so far? It's been good. Halloween was Monday. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> Lots of candy. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard because you know what I did on Halloween? What? I, well, I, I met Casey's um, in town, and I went and met her halfway between here and Richmond for dinner, an early, early dinner. And um, and then I came by my sister's so I could see my niece in her Halloween costume. And then I went home. I was home by 6 o'clock, and I turned off all the lights in my house. <laughs> I turned off my porch light, and then I pulled my room darkening curtains closed. And sat in my bed and watched TV and worked on my podcast. Oh, that I've, sounds amazing. I've lived in my house two years, and I've never turned on the TV in my bedroom. I don't really watch TV in there. I used to when I lived in my old house, watching in there a lot. Never, ever. It's the first time I turned on. Like, I had to get the antenna and put it in the window. And I literally was the biggest hermit and sat in my bed and watched TV and did not pass out candy. It's the first time. Well... It's the first time I sat home and didn't pass out candy. That sounds just amazing. Said, it was a rainy, gross day. I know. And I it just was didn't really feel gross. Like it. I know. I used to love it when I lived in the big planned community I lived in where we had like sidewalks on both sides of the street. I would pass out a thousand pieces of candy and I would I would love it. I would sit on the front porch and drink wine and pass out candy. And oh, it was yeah, fabulous. And I loved it. But it was just so gross out. And then Penelope would have barked every time somebody came to the door. I was oh just like, my I gosh, can't do this. Yeah, I, I remember just, that. I didn't have the mental capacity to deal with it. No, it's really hard to pass so out candy. I, I feel you. I did absolutely <laughs> nothing. <laughs> we had um, three of Charlotte's friends over and their Aww. families and one of Joseph's friends. We had a little uh, cookout and then went trick-or-treating. Oh, did my invitation get lost in the mail? Yeah. Oh. That happens to be a lot. I know. It does. It happens to be a lot. Uh, (laughs) So it was fun. It was, I don't know. I'm not someone who hosts many things. So it was, it's like exhausting for me. Oh, yeah. Because you like just getting your house clean, like the obsessive way you and I both clean is is too exhausting. And buying like all the food and making sure you have enough food. And Oh, yeah. And then you have way too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, how did I spend $600 on groceries this week? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. And then we also, this weekend, we went to Christina's house for her birthday. Her husband made us the most delicious meal. Like, I try really hard not to lick my plate when I eat there. It is The food is so good. It's just, I mean, I don't lick my plate, but I would if I could. I I saw her licking it. I did not. (laughs) It was such a yummy, yummy dinner. And... Um, we were talking to Christina's husband. Christina Rose, is my sister. Yeah, by Rose's the way. sister, Christina. It was Lynn her just birthday. thinks everyone knows who know. people we know are, and and she'll be listening to this while she's driving in the car and yelling at the the radio. That's yeah. how she does. Um, but I, we were telling Andy about. He didn't even know we were doing a podcast. Great communication going on in that house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he uh, was like. Oh, you're excited that you have 50 followers? And we were like, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Hell, yeah, we're excited. That is so exciting. Like, we were, like, giddy at – because our followers have gone up from, like, 41 to 53 to 58 to 60-something. Yeah. It's just, like – it's just, like, rapidly It's exciting increasing. to watch it. Yeah, it's very fun. I know it's not that many, but it's still fun. That's a lot for us. I mean, because we just thought we would have our, like, 10 closest family members that had to follow us. to watch it. <laughs> 
having and, to listen to it. Yeah, to have random people like and some of the comments like there's like comments on Apple on our podcast, the reviews. We know two of the people. The rest of them, we have no idea who they are. And it could just be that their screen name is something we don't know. But we don't know who they are. And they're, like, giving us five five stars. And that, thank you, you guys. Thank you, thank yeah, you, thank you, so thank awesome. you. Makes us feel so good. We really, really, really appreciate it. And, you know, those the comments about the um, podcast. And nobody's told us their bra size or their jockstrap size in no. the comments. <sighs> but that doesn't feel as good to read as the other comments. Yeah, the other comments are nicer. So you can say how hot we are and how funny we are. And, you know, you can say that, too. Yeah, that's fine. We'll yeah. take it. We'll take it. We'll take it anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you talking about today, Rosie Posey? All right. My lady is cray cray. All right. You ready? Is she batshit crazy? She's batshit crazy. Are you ready or are you just going to text? I'm I'm. I'm ready. I'm not doing anything. I'm just listening. You're texting. I'm not texting. I'm I'm reading. What are you reading? Um, a message that says, "Oh fuck yeah! At least I got that." I won't say the rest oh. of it because then you'll know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say it publicly. Okay, she'll okay. know who she is when she re- when she hears this. She probably doesn't listen. She thinks she's my girlfriend, but she's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. You ready? Mm-hmm. On March nineteenth, seventeen eighty-seven, a batshit crazy woman was born. You're not listening to me. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to take your phone okay. and put I just, it out I just put it down. the door. Okay. You just said in 1853 someone was born? No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know I'm that's not what you over. said. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. I put my phone down. I put it down. On March 19th, 1787, a batshit crazy woman was born. A batshit crazy woman. 77? 1787. I said 1877. You said no. You said 1953. Oh. <laughs> or 1853. <laughs> so it was 1877. 1787. <laughs> oh, my God. 1787. Okay. Yes, you got it? Yes. All right. Marie Delphine McCarthy her father was knighted as the Chevalier of the Royal and Military Order of St. Louis. Ooh. You know what that is? What's a Chevalier? I have no idea. <laughs> I tried to look it up, but it just kept What's saying that? like a knight. I want to swing on my chandelier. What was that? What's that song? I, I don't know. I want to swing on my chandelier. Chevalier. Chandelier. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of the tune of the, the... I can't think of the melody. So by the time she was seven, her family had... 1,344-acre plantation in New Orleans. So they were very wealthy. 1,000 acres. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, I can't even fathom. My grandparents had 44, like a 44-acre farm in Northern Virginia, and Uh that was huge. Yeah. I can't imagine 1,000 acres. Yeah, there was was farms in um, Stony Point where I lived um, originally when I moved to Charlottesville that had, like there was one family that owned... Several thousand acres. Yeah, like a lot of acreage. Yeah, must be nice. So her mom sounds like a lot of fun. She would host big parties, like long late night parties, and they'd go jumping in the um, canal on their property. And the women would get out and steal the men's shoes and their clothes and hide them. (laughs) So the men would have to walk home barefoot and naked. (laughs) That a girl. It's like, um, and then the I'd walk be in the shame. bushes, being like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's like doing the walk of shame. Lynn knows about that. Never. Never. I held my head high. <laughs> we used to I see... was proud to be a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> when um, my sister and I would go running on Saturday mornings on the UVA campus, we'd see like a ton of girls doing the walk of shame and they're... Makeup's all messed up. Their hair's all messed up. <laughs> How many guys did you see doing? Well, it's hard to tell with a guy because yeah, they always look, they, you know, yeah, yeah. they always look normal. So in 1807, when her mom passed away, she was about 20 years old, and her father started a relationship with a woman who they called a quadroon, which is someone who is just a quarter black. A quadroon. What? A That's what they called. Name. I know. That's what they called someone that was a quarter Why black. Why just call her a woman? Well, they didn't like that. And her name was Sophie Musante. And in 1815, she gave birth to a daughter, Delphine M.C. McCarthy. So the woman I'm talking about is Marie Delphine, but she went by Delphine. And then she names her daughter Delphine M.C. I'm like, isn't that weird? Seems like it would be confusing, but okay. Yeah. So a lot of the McCarthy men were in relationships with women, with free women of color, her uncle, Eugene, actually had a 54-year relationship with a woman of color named Eulali, and she was the daughter of an enslaved woman, and they had several children together, and they were happily married. Like, by all accounts, they were just a normal married couple. And then he, he also had two other children with women who were of mixed race. Mm. So she marries her first husband, and this seems to be like a theme with us. At the age of 14. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I know. I was, like, I was like, oh, my God, my girl didn't get married. This one, this my woman didn't get married. Before. Oh, really? I was like, thank God <laughs> for once. When I saw that, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we can't, we're like trying. We're not trying to do I this. I swear we're not. I guess we're doing like these older women and they all got married early back then. But her husband was 35-year-old widow. She was how old? 14. Oh, gross. Yes. And his name was Ramon Lopez y Angulo de la Candelaria. Wow. So I think, is he Latino? Spanish, yeah. Spanish. So they don't, I think that Latino people, don't don't they take the, the mother and father's name always or something like that? That's why their names are so long. I, I think I that have they no take, idea. it's something about how they take the mother and father's name. So Ramon was an officer of the Spanish crown and second in command to the Louisiana governor. So his wife had recently died when they were coming over from Spain to the Louisiana to step into his appointed position. Ramon and Delphine were married on June 11th, 1800, three months after her 14th birthday. So she was a grown woman by then. I mean, I know this is acceptable back then, but it just really grosses me out. I mean, he was so old, 35. That's disgusting. And so Ramon was pissed at the crown because they made him and his wife come over during a time when traveling... Overseas was really bad, like the time of year, it was really bad. Like dangerous bad? Really dangerous, yeah. And so he was like trying to get them to delay it by a month or so, and they wouldn't. They were like, no, you need to go now. Oh, yeah. And so then he lost his wife. And so she died, yeah. Um, And did, wait, did he have kids at this point? No, he didn't have any kids. So I was going to say, well, how's he going to take care of his kids? Lord knows a man can't do that back then. Well, they just get remarried right away. That's what I was saying. I mean, either way, they get remarried right away. Like a kid taking care of your kids. Yeah. (laughs) Your 14 year old wife. Yeah. So he started being like defiant to the crown and he <laughs> this is his job 
like being defined in our jobs, it's like whatever, you know, but being defined in his job, he opened the importation of captives directly from Africa, defying the orders that Spain had implemented. The orders prohibited the importation until hostilities had settled and had become a bit more of a peaceful environment in the human trafficking trade. Oh, my God. So he started up human trafficking again against Spain's wishes. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty defiant. He was like, I'll show you. Right. <laughs> so, the, and Spain was also mad at him because he had gotten married to Delphine without, like, asking them. I guess he, they wanted him to ask permission. So they actually removed him from his position and started, like, moving him to all different places around the world. After a few years, he was finally pardoned um, after Delphine wrote a letter to the queen asking to pardon him. And they, I Aww. guess... The queen was moved by it and they did it. And so he was appointed Spanish counsel to the new to New Orleans under the American administration. And at this point, Delphine is pregnant and living in Havana, waiting for Havana, him so that they could return to New Orleans together. <laughs> I was thinking of song. <laughs> Havana, ooh la la. So she wrote a letter to the queen when she was, how old was she at that point? She couldn't have been, she's under 18. Yeah. She still, was, I mean, I can't imagine she was still in school after she got married. She was just a couple years older. I mean, what than, did he pack her lunch? I mean, I don't know. Oh, Jesus. Maybe she's like, oh, this poor child wants me to pardon her husband. Ugh. Well, I mean, at least she had, she was li- literate, you know, so I mean. Yeah, right. She well, had she was, an education. She came from a wealthy family, so. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. And she's white. Oh, well, there you go. That's all she you had everything back then. Back then. <laughs> So he was in France at this time, and on January 11th, 1805, he was coming back from France to Havana to pick her up so that they could go back to New Orleans. Right before he gets to Havana, like right outside before they dock, Mm -hmm. his ship hits a sandbar off the shore, and he dies. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what kind of bad luck is that? Jeez. I guess they didn't have radar back then. No. (laughs) In 1805, I don't think so. So right after he died, Delphine gave birth to their daughter, Marie Delphine Francisca Borja Lopez y Angelo de la Candelaria. Oh, my God. How's she going to fit that on a Scantron (laughs) form? (laughs) Hope she never has to take the SATs. So she named her her same name, Marie, Marie Delphine, which is kind of funny. That's pretty interesting. So, yeah. So the baby girl was named in part after his dead wife. So I think Francisco must have been her name. So she only stayed long enough in Havana to bury her husband and have her daughter baptized. And then she returned to New Orleans. And when she returned, she found out that they were no, no longer under Spanish or French rule, but they were now under American ownership. Oh. So it's completely different. So in 1807, when her mother died, she was left $33,007 in her will, in her mother's will. That was a lot of money back which then. Which is equivalent to 844546 today. 800000 So almost a million. That's pretty good. That's pretty much what I'm going to get. My parents pass. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep dreaming. No, I want my parents to spend it all, live life to the fullest. So she also left her a downtown plantation on the Mississippi River, 52 slaves, livestock, and farm equipment. A few weeks later on her 20th birthday, March 19th, 1807, she married John Paul Black, who may have had an eye on her inheritance. Once mm. they were married, her father gifted them another plantation, property, another piece of property, and then an additional 26 slaves. In today's value, her inheritance was worth over $2 million. Wow. Yeah. And that's before her father I mean, died. And it, well, and, and, you know, the, the uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Conversion of money then to now, not to mention the value of the land right. then to now. Yeah. I mean, my God, it's ridiculous. It's probably like five times that amount. Exactly. So Jean-Paul was not a great guy. He was at, really active in the slave trade and politics and no, a known associate of Jean and Pierre Lafitte. Who were notorious pirate brothers? Ooh, wonder if they knew Anne Bonny. I know that's what I thought when I <laughs> when I read that. It was about the same time, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't she? Didn't she go? Oh no, she was in Charleston. Never mind. Using what I assume was her money, he bought a two-story townhome on Royal and Conti, which was next door to the Bank of Louisiana, where he was the director. By 1815, she had five children: one from her first husband and four from Black. Oh my God. In 1816, Black passed away at 50 years old. So she was like way older than her. Mm-hmm. She was only 28 at this point. And she's already, she's been widowed twice. Right. At 28. <laughs> yeah. And she has five kids. Oh my God. <laughs> the horror. Oh my God. She just needs to just walk in the bayou and never come <laughs> back. <laughs> So she was in charge of settling his estate, obviously. And his estate consisted of debts that totaled over $160,000, which at that time was over $2.5 million. To the conversion to today. Yeah. So that... So she had she was in charge of settling his estate, which he didn't have because the only thing he had, everything he had was because of her. Well, and he, she so didn't he, know he was in debt. Right. Yeah. So he had stuff before they got married, but he was in like a ton of debt. Yeah. So she has to renounce all of their community property um, to the court and forfeit all of their mutual assets. And then she's allowed to keep her personal property and her assets. So over the next 10 years, she auctions everything off of his, including his slaves, and pays off his debt. And she even buys one of his pieces of property for herself. Go girl. As one as well as some of his slaves. You don't want to say go girl to this lady. She's not nice. Oh, no. Well, at this point, she's like surviving, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1824, her father dies and leaves her a substantial inheritance. So the funny thing is, like two articles I read said... It was $5,000 and two slaves, but that's only equivalent to $12,000 today, mm-hmm. which that's not a substantial inheritance. No, that's not that much You money. know what I mean? If she's wealthy, that's like yeah. nothing. So I don't think that's right. That's like so, a credit card bill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking for a friend. <laughs> Rose. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so the next year, she meets 25-year-old Dr. Louis LaLaurie. Ooh, she did. Is she a is she a a milf now? She like she's the, a cougar. She's a cougar, just like you. I, I am not. My boyfriend is like nine years well, older than me. I mean, before you know. Yeah, well, you've been known to be I a cougar. test the waters, you know. So yeah, so now she's she's had two aging husbands, and now she's got a young right, one. I know. She's like woo, good for her. Go girl. Imagine what that's. Well, like. you said not to say go girl, but I am until you tell me why I shouldn't. <laughs> why you shouldn't? Yeah. Well, I did say at the beginning that she was like one of the worst. Oh yeah, you did say that. Sorry. <laughs> so. Sorry, I was I was texting. I was being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> so he came from over from France to start a physician's practice of destroying hunches. You know what that is? Hunch, like an idea? No. <laughs> he was a chiropractor, uh. <laughs> straightening crooked backs. Oh, look at him! And so they One met when she brought her <laughs> when her when she brought her daughter into the office for an appointment. Hmm. At this point, she is 38, which in those days is super old, and they start dating, and she gets pregnant out of wedlock. 
Wow, 38 and pregnant at that age. I know. I mean, at that age, at that 38 age. at that age. But at that time. That's old. Had to be really That's dangerous. Like yeah, I mean, because you didn't have all the technology you do yeah, now. No. And she wasn't married. I mean, she's going to go to hell for <gasps> oh sure. Oh, my God. She slept with him before she was yeah. married? She's a <gasps> slut. What? Dirty slut. Drusiana. That's my grandmother would say. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Slut? Some Italian word. <laughs> Drusiana. It's probably like, I don't know, Jezebel or something. I have no idea. I'm sure. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. So, but that's what my grandmother would say. When if like, if I would dress in something that was like a crop top back in the 80s, she would go, she would say, oh, you look like a Drusian. <laughs> that's so funny. And I was like, and that's my outfit for the day. <laughs> yeah, It's settled. Boom, done. Mic drop. And I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly, but my grandmother had a very, very strong accent, Italian accent, and she spoke very little English. So it's probably not even the correct pronunciation, but it, I assumed it was kind of like a Jezebel or hooker oh, or something. I don't you're know. like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to be. And that's and I was like, and that's the perfect outfit. I'm ready to go. Where are all the boys? <laughs> Grandma doesn't like it. Grandma thinks I look slutty. It was nanny. Excuse oh, me. It was on grandma. I know, nanny. Get it together. I know. It's nanny. It was nanny. Small nanny. Small, small nanny and big nanny. Who was my, big nanny? My mom's mother was really tall. Oh. So we called her big nanny. I was like, I'd be hate to be big nanny. Well, no, big nanny and big pop-up were my mom's parents, and they were both tall, like over five, six. Yeah. And my my dad's parents were small nanny and small pop-up, and they were very short. Like, my grandmother was like 4'11". Oh, okay. When she died. Like, obviously, she shrunk, but she was always very, very short. Charlotte will sometimes jokingly call Chris Big Daddy. <laughs> he... <laughs> Hates it so much. <laughs> Ew. He gets so mad, but just because he's like, uh, like thinks she's calling him fat. Oh, that's why she hates. Why he hates it. So I, when I want to mess with him, I'm just like, "Hey, big daddy." <laughs> He'd probably like it if you he's called like, him that in the bedroom. Hey, I don't daddy. think he would. He gets really offended by it. Oh, I think he would. Uh, I'm gonna call him that from now. <laughs> He's going to get mad that I talked about it. And they were like, hey, big daddy. Hey, big daddy. Hey, big daddy. Can I sit on your lap? <laughs> He's going to, like, punch you right in the face. <laughs> and there you have it. Your marriage is over. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Oh, my God. So because she had this baby out of wedlock... They when she was when the baby was like five months they had a son and I had it all written down but somehow I deleted um, like a paragraph or two but who knows what I did so anyway they had a son and five when he's five months they go they finally get married and they have the marriage certificate backdated so that it doesn't look like she had a baby out of wedlock oh well there you go I mean if you can do that I mean it's I a mean, I think court matter I they were support. wealthy yeah so. I guess you just pay somebody yeah, yeah I just guess paid so. somebody yeah. I thought that was so funny. I bet a lot of people did that back then. So in 1831, Madame I Delphine. I didn't bother. I just said, guess what? I'm pregnant. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Delphine purchases the lots on Royal and Hospital, which would become the infamous haunted Lor- LaLori Mansion. Ooh. Every time I read LaLori, I want to say Lorelai, like from oh. Gilmore Girls. Yeah, Lorelai. Yeah. I love that show. Surprisingly, the beautiful mansion did not make their relationship any better, and on November 16, 1832, she petitioned the courts for a separation from the bed and board of her husband. The bed and board? Yeah. What does that mean? I guess, like, the like sleeping with him and living with him. She said that he was, like, really abusive and he beat her, and oh. it's 
seems like it was probably true. And so he he does move out, but I don't know if he comes back or what, because he's living in the house later on. So in April 10th, 1834, a fire breaks out in their mansion. Hmm, mystery. And through the smoke and flames, an ugly truth was exposed and suspicions confirmed. The Lorelei mansion held ugly secrets. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> In the 1830s, there were rumors in the French Quarter alleging that Delphine and possibly her husband as well were being excessively cruel to their slaves. Which you imagine had to be pretty fucking cruel. I know. If they were reporting it as cruel, it had to be horrendous. Like, I I didn't even know that could be a thing. Because, I mean, you've heard about I mean, slave owners. They're all treated, well, I mean, I shouldn't say all, I shouldn't generalize, but more often than not, slaves were treated like shit. And if somebody reported somebody is treating a slave like shit, slave like shit it had to be horrendous. Right. And like if the whole be, town is like, yeah. Oh my God. It, That's awful. So while it was common and legal for enslavers to physically discipline the men and oh. women they owned, hmm. there were certain guidelines to use to discourage excessive physical cruelty. Didn't know that either. It was just a guideline, not a law, I don't but a th- guideline. I think that must not be true everywhere. Like, that might have been, like, just a law there. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like, all these stories you hear, they're, like, whipping their slaves to death. And... I know, but if, but the thing is, is they're doing that, and they're doing it behind closed doors, so nobody, like, quote-unquote knows. If they're being that bad, that it's public knowledge, are they just doing right. it, like, out in public? Like No, and actually, everything I read said that she was really nice to everyone in public, to uh, slaves, she was, like, to... Two-faced. Yeah, so I don't know what her deal was. I know a couple girls like her. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> we know i know i know a few so one of the rumors that went around town was that 12 year old leah was one one of her enslaved people had jumped to her death from the mansion window while being chased by delphine for snagging a knot while brushing her hair just to avoid her punishment she jumped (gasps) to her death Oh, my God. And after this incident, um, they launched an investigation because so many people reported it. Well, I hope so. And they, the lorries were forced to give up nine slaves. That's how bad it was. They were forced to give up nine. That they were punished that like, bad that they had to give up slaves. But you can keep the rest because, you know, yeah, it's only I a know. percentage. I don't of know the, what, which ones they picked oh, or what. God, it's so disgusting back then. It little, it makes my stomach crawl. I know. It's, or roll. What is the word? I'm like, not crawl. It makes my skin crawl, my stomach turn. There you go. <laughs> I haven't had dinner yet. I'm a little <laughs> going around to my head. <laughs> but a family member buys those slaves at auction and gives them back to her. <gasps> Stop it, yeah. Rose. So they didn't really care. It was just like a legal thing, you it's know. It's a good damn thing I didn't live back then. I had to punch some people. Yeah, such bullshit. So there's a fire breaking out at their their mansion. So a judge who lived next door saw the fire and he like runs over to help. And some of the neighbors were trying to like help the Lalories transfer, like take all their valuables out of their house and move it somewhere else just to keep it safe in case the fire um, spread throughout their house. Cause it, so at how did the point, fire start? It was just in the kitchen. You'll find out in a minute. Okay. I, I have an idea. Hold your horses. I'm hoping I have an idea. So a few of the of the neighbors that were there tell the judge that they know that there are slaves in the house, even though the Lalories were saying that there was no one else in the house. Mm. And so the judge goes up at, to Dr. Lalori and he's like, hey, are there, you know, can we go ahead and go in and take the slaves out? And Dr. Lalori says... Well, the house is on fire. Yeah, right. Um, at this point, it was still just in the kitchen, though. So they they could still save anyone who wasn't in the kitchen. Well, the slaves usually live near or like their, their rooms are usually near the kitchen. Well, it might have been still small at this point because somebody was in the kitchen that they find. I don't know. But it was small enough that they could go in the house. 
Okay. So Dr. LaLaurie replies, there are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of other people. Oh. To the judge, he says you mean, that. You mean caring about human life? Yeah. Oh, you bastard. Yeah, what is wrong like, with you? Mind your own business. You, sir, can fuck off. So the judge sees that the fire is like spreading everywhere. So he just tells the mob, there's like a mob at this point, and he tells them just break down the doors and go into the mansion. And there they find a 70-year-old cook chained to the stove <gasps> by her ankle. And she tells him that she set the fire as, fire as a suicide attempt because she feared her punishment would put her in the attic, a room all the slaves feared. Oh, no. So, of course, they're like, okay, we need to go to the attic immediately. <gasps> oh, my God. And they find this, like, horrendous sight. There's seven slaves, and their bodies are covered in scars and chains, and they're suspended by their necks with their limbs, like, stretched out and torn. Uh- and... They tell the mob that they've been there for months. They've been <gasps> in this attic being tortured for months. Oh, my God. Let me hit that bitch. I swear to God, I would fucking kill her. <laughs> so this changes everything for the mob. They're oh. like, wait, we were helping these people. Now, fuck them. Yeah. And yeah. so they start destroying the mansion. Like, Good they start them. destroying everything in the mansion. And the mansion finally, like, just burned. Days after the fire, it was reported that one of the slaves who had been removed from the residence did not survive. And that bones were excavated from the Lalori courtyard. Mm. It was documented that one of the set of bones was the young slave girl that Delphine had chased straight out of a window. Oh my allowing God. the young girl to fall to her death. And then they just buried her on her property. I think I read that there was like nine slaves buried on her property or something mm. crazy like that. So while the fire's going on, the um, enslaved coachman brings the carriage around her house and Delphine jumps in and the mob tries to like hold the horses and like pull her from the carriage. But they eventually were able to escape and he drives her to a schooner. Do you know what that is? Some kind of boat, I think. A schooner. Schooner. S-C-H-O-O-N. Schooner. Yeah, it's a, it's a boat. Yeah. Oh, what kind of boat? Uh, I need specifics. I don't. A schooner? Isn't it like a sailboat type of boat? I don't know. I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> schooner. I said I think schooner. It has, I think it has sails on it. So he drives her to the sh- schooner and drops her off at the New Orleans Navigation Company, where she boards a sailing ship with two or more masts, typically with the foremost. Oh my god, my contacts are blurry. Typically with the four mo- four mast smaller than the. M- main mast and having gaffed rigged lower mass so it has two or more masts okay so it's like something like this okay so it's yeah, big schooner. but it looks like a sailboat yeah i thought it was something yeah so in my mind when you say a schooner i think of a boat with sails so so anyway he drops her at the I'm boat i'm so glad i'm smarter than you and she <laughs> <laughs> whatever i crack myself up God so he drops her there and she gets on the boat and leaves <laughs> and he goes back to the house well, it, so it's kind of, this is kind of lore. So it says that he goes back to the house and the mob attacks the carriage and starts stabbing the horses to death. Oh, no. Which to me, I'm like, eh, I don't know that he would go back to the house. Yeah. That doesn't really make sense. And that the mob would stab the horses. Why would they do that? Well, because it's his property and they're trying to get, I mean, it's it's not Maybe. fair to I me and it upsets me, yeah. but I feel like it's his property. So they'll be like, okay, we're going to destroy your property. Sounds like bullshit to me. So it's said that they eventually ended up in Paris and her children actually would come and visit her for like extended stays. And another thing I forgot to tell you was that it was known that she would beat her slaves, but she also beat her two daughters. Oh, no. And it doesn't say anything about her beating her sons, but her two daughters. And it would usually be because she was the daughters were being nice to the slaves and she didn't like that. (sighs) Thank God they 
didn't inherit all their mother's psycho psych- yeah, I mean, psychosis. I don't know, yeah, or I don't know what happened to them. But. So Lewis, her husband, Dr. LaLaurie, lived off of her wealth, but he eventually left her because she complained too much and went to Havana. <laughs> <laughs> Havana, ooh-la. Um, more of her family ends up moving to Paris, and they all occupied homes um, there with her. And we're just a family again. Back Like, she just escaped. And, you know, back then, it's like they can't find you. Yeah, yeah. If you're all the way in France, right. hell no, they're never going to find you. They're not going to find you in the next state or Right, exactly. Whatever, what, what were they calling you? Could easily, it's not like then. you had, like, an ID. You could just change your name. Yeah. So she died in Paris on December 7th, 1849. Good for her. I hope it was a painful death, Which bitch. is Pearl Harbor Day, <sighs> December 7th. What a crazy lady. I know. That's just so, like, why, what would make you ever treat other human beings that mean, like that poorly? Like, well, why would you ever a, do that? A lot of things said, like, nobody had ever said anything about her being mean to slaves or anyone until... She married Dr. LaLaurie. Oh. So they were like, maybe she was like so unhappy in her marriage that she started beating him or maybe she saw him beating him, them and she got into it. I don't or know. Or he was the only one that wasn't afraid of her. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. did she do it the whole time? I mean, why would you just just start doing right. that? I feel like that's kind of but a personality the other thing trait. Is weird, that's weird is that her dad was married to a woman who was mixed race. Her siblings were mixed race. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. You know, it seems weird that she's she'd even have slaves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, but her father but, had slaves and was with a. But you had to in order to run your house, especially if you had that much money. You, she wasn't going to do all that work around her house. Who was going to do all the cooking and cleaning? Well, it wasn't going to be pay her. Someone. She had a lot of money. Well, she wasn't going to pay him when she could have him work for free. Oh well, I know that's that, why she was but, rich. But how, on, are you, how are you? How is her dad married to a black woman and he's has slaves? I mean, how does that work? Because they just don't care. They're like in total denial, well, in my opinion. Sense. You know, they're better than everyone else. Yeah, fuckers. Oh, God, don't get me started. So it shows that records show that she was buried on December 9th, 1849 in Paris. But then they dug her up and took her back to New Orleans and then buried her there. Oh, I'd love to go spit on her grave. Like two years later. That's exciting. So she's so, actually there. There's actually a grave there oh, with her name on it. Oh, yeah. In Rose. New Orleans. That'll be our next trip. So you in New Orleans, the Lelorelei. <laughs> you did it. You said you were going to do it. And you did it. You did I it. Can't do it. The Lalaurie Mansion is one of the most famous ghost tour stops. Ooh, because it's the the mansion's still there. They remodeled it. Like somebody came in like a few years later yeah. and remodeled it. And there are tons of ghost stories you can read about Delphine and her mansion. And there's actually an American Horror Story episode about this Ooh. and Kathy Plates. Kathy. <laughs> Plates. Kathy Bates plays Are you Delphine. hungry, Rose? <laughs> I am a little hungry. I'm very hot, too. I am hot as well. Okay. I just added this because it was interesting. In April 2007, actor Nicolas Cage bought the house for $3.45 million. And to protect his privacy, the mortgage documents were arranged in a, such a way that Cage's name did not appear on them. Yeah, that's how. In November of 2009, the property was then sold again at auction um, because of foreclosure. What? Yeah. Didn't he have a bunch of money uh, problems? No. He Didn't he get, like, didn't he get arrested or something? Wasn't he arrested at, cert- at a certain point? Wasn't, wasn't there, like... Nicolas Cage? I felt like he had a bunch of money problems. I feel like there was, like, I remember seeing, like, a mug shot of him. Am I wrong? I don't, I don't know. Movie. I, don't I don't know. know. But when people, when people of, you know, like, um, higher stature, like, you know, movie stars, stuff like that, buy houses, they always buy them under a corporation name. Yeah. So when you could, you can go on, like, the county's website 
and see anybody that's purchased a house. I can look up your name and Chris's name and see how much you purchased your house for, when you bought it, what the address is, yeah, and everything. Right. I, are you saying, yeah, right, sarcastically? <laughs> Bitch, I'm serious. <laughs> No, I'm not saying it sarcastically. Oh. So that's why people, when, they, when they're when they really rich and stuff, they just buy, like, you know, people like movie stars yeah. and stuff, they buy them under an LLC. I checked my identity. You should have bought your house under Damn an it. LLC. I got Penelope under an LLC to protect my privacy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's what they do. So that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So, But I thought that was interesting. That is crazy. So you can still go visit it in New Orleans. Yeah. If you do a ghost city tour. Yeah, and we get spit on her grave. Yeah. But I think we need to take a break because I'm feeling a little stuffy. I'm feeling like really, really hot. I'm feeling hot and lightheaded. <laughs> You're back, Mick. Okay. We're back. We're back. <laughs> okay. So I just went upstairs and got my water. I left it upstairs. And some candy from Halloween. And then I grabbed, I snagged out of the Halloween bucket. I got peanut M&M's. Yum. A Kit Kat and two Twix bars. And we demolished them all. So much fun. What's today? Oh, today's Wednesday. We're we're recording a day early again this week. So, yeah, I don't have to get on the scale for two days. So I'll eat just lettuce all day. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I won't do that, unfortunately. Just starve yourself. I No, I'm not going to starve myself, bros. That's not healthy. So what? So we never talked about our drink today again. We had another um, Kentucky Mule. Because I have all this ginger beer, I want to go ahead and use it. So it's Knob Creek. And Gosling's ginger beer and a lime. Super yummy. It yummy really to my yummy. tummy. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite drinks now. I thought I hated very, meals. It's very good. So today, Rose, I'm going to talk about Patricia Hurst. Do you know who that is? I do not. I didn't think you did, Rose. So a lot of people call her Patty Hurst, but she pre- prefers to be called Patricia over Patty based on the articles that I looked at. She was born on February 20th, 1954 in San Francisco, California. She was the third of five daughters to Randolph Apperson Hurst and Catherine Wood Campbell. She prim- primarily grew up in Hillsboro, which is about 17 miles south of San Francisco. Um, just a little bit of information. Hillsboro is known as Amer- as one of America's richest towns and one of the most prestigious zip code in the Bay Area. Ooh, my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> my microphone keeps moving. It's driving me crazy. So, um, yeah, San Francisco is pretty, like, expensive place to live. Oh, so yeah. if it's, like, prestigious in that area, I can't even what imagine. What year is this? Um, in June 2021, they it was named... This article said oh, that okay. it was one of America's richest towns and one of the most prestigious zip codes in the oh. Bay Area. But she was born in 1954. She went to S- Santa Catalina School in Monterey, a residential school run by, Dominic- run by Dominican nuns. Rebellion marked her teens, a period that included fights with nuns. She actually told one of the nuns at her school to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> She she experimented with LSD and had a sexual history that began at age 15. She was not an outstanding student. And in her junior year in 1970, she enrolled at Crystal Springs School for Girls. While there, she fell in love with a 23-year-old school teacher, Stephen Weed. So her parents, she was being like wild at the other school. So they're like, we're going to send you to a girl's school. To a girl's school. Falls in love with one of the teachers. The, yeah, the teachers. And That's he funny. was like teaching her guitar lessons and tutoring her and they began a lengthy affair. Oh, nice. Yeah. So although I don't have a child bride, it was she was 16 when she met this dude and they fell in love and started having an affair. So it's just as gross. So after high school graduation, she attended 
Menlo College in Atherton, California, which is like a junior college. When Weed won a fellowship and a teaching grant to the University of California at Berkeley, she followed him and enrolled there. They became engaged in December of 1973. Patty's father was accepting of the relationship as long as Weed treated his daughter well. Her mother was his, not... Wait, his name is Weed? Stephen Weed, but I like to call him Weed. Like W-E-E-D? Weed, like smoke that shit. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> I think it's so funny, so I call him Weed because I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother was not so accepting, but she kept her opinion to herself as she and Patty had a very strained relationship. That's because she's kept sending her off to boarding school. Yeah, well, that's true. And I mean, mothers and daughters at that age don't have a great relationship usually anyway. Don't tell me that. I just took it back. <laughs> <laughs> Lily, wait, I'm going to tell you. Lily um, is two. My daughter Lily is two. And her new thing is when she wants you to pick her up, she says, I need you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so freaking cute. Like, <laughs> you can't you. resist. I need you. <laughs> They have a way of like completely just wrapping you around their fingers. I know. So because Patty's mom... And she had a strained relationship. She wanted to show that she supported her even though she didn't. And so she took out a full page ad in the paper announcing the engagement. <laughs> Way to overdo it. Well, her dad was also the the editor of the paper. Oh, OK. So in 1974, Patricia was a sophomore at Berkeley studying art history. She lived with her fiancé, Stephen Weed, in an apartment in Berkeley. On February 4th, around 9 p.m., Patricia and Steve were watching TV and the doorbell rang. Patricia got up to answer the door, and she was wearing a robe and just underwear underneath it. A young woman claimed to have struck what she thought was Stephen's car, Weed's car. Within seconds of the door opening, a small urban guerrilla left-wing group calling themselves the Symbionese Libertarian Army, the SLA, consisting of three men and three women, pushed the door open, armed with guns, asking asking where the safe was. They proceeded to beat up Patricia and Steve. At one point, Stephen was able to get away. And the SLA kidnapped Patricia. I'm like, really? He just like, he was able to get away. He just left her. He's like, see ya, I'm out. Did he? Yeah. He like got hit in the head and he was like in the hallway or something. He was able to escape. Oh my gosh. There's like some mixed stories about that. But um, I mean, I can kind of see it like, you know, we weren't there. So. He kept saying one of the, a couple of things I read. He kept saying, take whatever you want. Take whatever you want. And they did. They took her. <laughs> so, so the SLA, again, I'm going to call them, they are the Symbionese Libertarian, Libertarian Army. I'm going to call them the SLA moving forward. What are you going to call them? The SLA. What are this, what are this, what is that stuff? Oh, my God. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I fucking hate you. you I had to phonetically write it out because I'm like, I'm never going to be able to say that. The SLA put Patty in the trunk. And by this time, the neighbor said, come outside to see what all the commotion was. The SLA fired shot at, shots at the neighbors and to scare them away. As they were leaving the neighborhood, they came head to head with a police car. The cops slowed down and waved them down. He told them, stop them, told them, make sure you turn on your headlights. And they did and drove away. With her (laughs) truck. Oh, that's so funny. So a little bit of history about her family. Patricia Hearst's grandfather, William Randolph Hearst, created the largest newspaper magazine, newsreel, and movie business in the world. In 1941, Orson Welles' film, Citizen Kane, was based in part on the life of William Randolph Hearst, which now I want to watch. Oh, wow. Her great-grandmother, this is cool, her great-grandmother was a philanthropist, Phoebe Hearst. She was also a feminist and a suffragist. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it, but I didn't know what it was. A what? A, a suffragist, a suffrage, you know what a feminist is. Oh. <laughs> a suffragist is a person advocating for the rights to vote be extended to more people, especially women. Don't you remember in, um, don't you remember in Mary Poppins, the mother was like 
she was always doing she always had the buttons and she was always like i don't know for women's rights and suffragettes and she don't you remember that's yeah so that i remember that patricia's grandmother was the her great grandmother was the founder of the University of California Museum of Anthropology, which is now called the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology. She was also the co-founder of the National Parent Teacher Association. That's kind of cool. I thought that was pretty interesting. The family was associated with immense political influence and position of anti-communism since before World War II. So they were very affluential. They were like very affluent. They had like a lot of money and a lot of political poll. Patricia's father was only one of five heirs and didn't have control of the Hearst interests, financial interests, obviously. So her parents didn't consider it necessary to take measures for their children's personal security. Hearst kidnapping was partially a crime of opportunity as Patricia happened to live near the SLA hideout in California. The group's main intention was to leverage the Hearst family's political influence in order to free two SLA members who had been arrested in November of 1973 for the killing of Marcus Foster. Marcus was a superintendent of Oakland Public Schools. They killed him for bringing police into public schools. The SLA felt that the police were not helping children, but controlling them. They called these these kind of people the pigs, not the police. They called like um, politicians and, you know, like conformists and pigs. Um, So after the state of California refused to free the men, the SLA demanded that the captive's family distribute 70 dollars worth of food to every needy Californian, an operation that would cost an estimated $400 million. In response, Hearst's father took out a loan and arranged the immediate donation of only $2 million worth of food to the poor of the Bay Area for one year in a project called People in Need. After the the distribution descended into chaos, the SLA refused to release Hearst. Patricia was upset that her father didn't meet the demands of the SLA. According to Patricia's testimony in court, she was held for a week in a closet, blindfolded with her hands tied. During this time, the SLA founder and spokesperson, Sing Kui, who she they called him they all had nicknames he was sing Kui, who was also known as donald defreeze who had escaped from prison repeatedly threatened patricia with death he repeatedly told her parents told her that her parents didn't care about her and neither did the police she felt like she had nowhere to go i mean she only knew what they were telling her at this point yeah and and he didn't meet their demands. So. Right, right. So she's like, she knows her father has money. Right. So the SLA consisted of three men and two women who all called themselves feminists. They rejected monogamy. And the only rule they had was to be a was to be comrade. <laughs> I knew I was going to have a hard time with this word. To be comrade, comradely. Comradely. So like be a comrade to each other. Comradely. 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 Like be like. Is that a word? Comradely. That's what the word that they said. The only rule they had was to be comradely to each other. Be a good comrade, basically. <laughs> they rejected. <laughs> shut up, Rose. They rejected U.S. culture, but they had no defined alternatives. Like they rejected the culture. They rejected everything, but they didn't have any defined alternatives as to why. Patricia was led out of a closet for meals, still blindfolded, and began to join the group's political discussions. She was confined to the closet for weeks, she said. DeFries told me that the War Council had decided or was thinking about killing me or keeping me with them and that I better start thinking about that as a possibility. Sorry, that was a tough sentence. Wait a second. Do they... So they told her that they, they're they thinking about killing her or they're thinking about keeping her, but she start, better start thinking about what she wants to do. I think I've seen something about this. Do, I'm sure you do have. Do they, it. like, rob a bank? Let me get oh, sorry. Okay, I did see something about that. Yeah. 
Um, Sorry. To so Patricia said, I accommodated my thoughts to coincide with theirs. And in an earlier account dated in April of 1974, Patricia said she had been offered the choice of being released or joining the SLA. When asked for her decision, Patricia said she wanted to stay and fight with the SLA. The blindfold was removed, allowing her to see the captors for the first time. After this, she was given daily lessons of her duties, especially weapon drills. Angela Atwood, one of the SLA members, told Patricia that the others thought she should know what sexual freedom was like in the unit. According to her lawyer, Patricia was raped by William Wolfe and later by DeFries. On April 3, 1974, two months, before, two months after she was abducted, Patricia announced in an audio tape that she had joined the SLA and taken the name Tanya. The name was copied from the alias of Heidi Tamara Bunky Bider, who is an Argentine-born East German Marxist revolutionary and spy and played a prominent role in the Cuban government after the Cuban Cuban Revolution and in various Latin American revolutionary movements. I was like, whoa. Patricia's audio tape was released to the media. And I listened to that. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty intense. On April 15, 1974, Patricia was seen on surveillance video brandishing an M1 carbine, which is a lightweight semi-automatic carbine that was the standard firearm for the U.S. military during World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, while she was robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. Patricia identified herself as the pseudonym Tanya. She yelled, I'm Tanya, up, up, against the wall, motherfuckers. Two men entered the bank, while the robbery was occurring and were shot and wounded by the SLA. Patricia at this point was claiming that she was not being held by the SLA. Rather, she was an ally. Some say she was forced to make this statement. Attorney General William B. Saxby said that Patricia was a common criminal and not a reluctant participant at the bank robbery. However, James L. Browning Jr., the leading prosecutor in Patricia's trial, said that her participation in the robbery may have been voluntary, contrasting with earlier comment, which she said, which he said she might have been coerced into taking part. The FBI agent heading the investigation said the SLA members were photographed pointing guns at Patricia during the robbery. So a lot of people are saying, you know, she didn't, you know, she had no choice. They were like holding yeah, her captive. But yeah. then other people are saying she's doing this because she wants to because she released that statement. But nobody knows. Did they make her say it? You yeah, know, like I'm sure they knows. did. So, if they just kidnapped her and were holding her, I mean, yeah. she had no part of it. Right. And then I'm sure she was and scared. Then they made her say, uh, I'm, I'm here on my own free will. But the, in the video, the FBI, I believe the FBI over other police officers said that there's video of them holding guns on her in the bank shooting too. So on May 16th, 1974, the manager at Mel's Sporting Goods in Inglewood, California, caught William Harris while shopping with his wife, Emily, shoplifting. Patricia was with them, but she waited across the road in a van filled with guns and ammunition. The manager and employee followed Harris outside the store and confronted him. There was a scuffle and the manager restrained Harris when they realized they he restrained them when he realized he had a gun, like a gun fell during the scuffle. Watching this, the scuffle, Patricia from the van discharged an entire magazine of automatic carbine into Holy the overhead shit. storefront, causing the manager to dive behind a light post. Oh my God. He tried to shoot back, but Hearst began aiming closer. Why the hell did the manager have a gun? Unless he was Is using... Is that a grocery store? No, it's at a sporting goods store. Yeah, I mean, he was probably using the gun he found on... Maybe. That's true. I didn't even think about that. But so, why... 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so yeah, I mean, like that's why this is this the reason why, like, when you work in retail, they tell you never to follow somebody out of a store. Yeah, exactly. Because you're not allowed to. I mean, you get fired for doing that. Some crazy. People you're like, let them there. steal it. Who cares? Yeah. So the van Patricia was waiting in became damaged from the shootout and was undrivable. So a funny side story about this: the three were on their way to pay a parking ticket. So. <laughs> They're going to kill all these people and hold people hostage, but they're going to go pay their parking ticket one time <laughs> yeah. when they stopped at the sporting goods store. When they were switching to the they, – so they stole a car, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But when they were switching to the stolen car, they forgot the parking ticket, which was on the dash of the van, and left it in there. Oh. So the ticket was issued on the street in front of the house where they were hiding out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so they found them. So, yeah. So the police found the ticket. So Patricia and Harris – Patricia and the Harris couple hijacked two different cars. And Why didn't they hijack cars if they had a van? I just told you the van was damaged in the shootout. It was oh. undrivable oh, and they left the ticket in it. My I God, Bruce. Jesus Christ. Patricia and the Harris couple hijacked two different cars and kidnapped one of the owners of the cars. One of the young men who found Patricia so personable that he was reluctant to report the incident. <laughs> he testified that he and Patricia had a lengthy conversation about the effectiveness of cyanide-tipped bullets. And she repeatedly asked if he was okay. She also told told the young man that she was willing a willing participant in the bank robbery. The police found the ticket in the abandoned van and the FBI and LA police surrounded the main base of the SLA in Los Angeles before the three were able to return to the house. So they hid elsewhere. It doesn't say how they knew. They just, I, you know, obviously they didn't have cell phones back then. The six SLA members inside the house died. Some in a gunfight with the police, others in a resulting in a resulting fire and defreeze by suicide. This was the longest shootout in LA history, LA police history. It was initially thought that Patricia had also died in this confrontation. So they were in this house and they started shooting. And so they went to the bottom of the house, like the crawl space of the house, and were shooting out of the crawl spaces. The SLA guys? The SLA people. And so the police were shooting back. And so they ended up finding them. And once the house caught on fire, they found them in the crawl space. Oh, wow. Yeah, that they had died. Warrants were issued for the arrest of Patricia and the Harrises for several felonies, including two counts of kidnapping. Patricia, Emily, and William Harris decided they'd blend in more easily if they went to a highly populated er- populated area. So they went to a motel near Disneyland. <laughs> Once in the motel, they saw the news that the other SAL- SLA members had been killed. They watched the whole shootout and fire unfold on TV. Emily Harris went to a Berkeley rally to commemorate the deaths of the founding members of the SLA who had died in Los Angeles during the police siege. Harris recognized a previous f- friend of Angela Atwood's, Kathy Sola, at the gathering for the deceased SLA members, who she known from civil rights groups. Solaya, Sola, Solaya, I think it's Solaya, introduced the three fugitives to Jack Scott, an athletics reformer and radical athletics reformer and radical and he agreed to provide them with help and money in august 1975 patricia helped make explosive devices and used that were used twice to attempt to kill police officers however one of the devices failed to detonate on september 18 1975 patricia was arrested in san francisco in a in a san francisco apartment with wendy yoshimera another sla member by san francisco police inspectors and fbi special agents while being booked into jail, Patricia listed her occupation as urban gorilla. She asked her attorney to relay the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I'm free and feel strong. I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. Marked money found in the apartment where she was arrested linked Patricia to the SLA armed robbery of Crocker National Bank 
in Carmichael, California. She was the getaway car driver for that robbery. Mirna Opsal, a mother of four who was in the bank making a deposit, was shot dead by masked Emily Harris. Patricia was potentially at risk for a felony murder charge and could testify as a witness against Harris for for a capital offense. At the time of her arrest... Patricia's weight had dropped to 87 pounds, and she was described by psychologist Marcia Singer in October of 1975 as a low IQ, low effect zombie. Shortly after her arrest, doctors recorded her signs of trauma. This is crazy. Her IQ was measured at 112, whereas it had previously previously had been. What is wrong with me? I don't know. You're like me the other night. Her IQ was measured as 112, whereas it had previously been 130. There were huge gaps in her memory regarding her pre-Tanya life. She was smoking heavily and had nightmares. Without mental illness or mental shortcoming, a person is considered to be fully responsible for any criminal action done not under duress, which is defined as a clear and present threat of death or serious injury. For Patricia to secure an acquittal on the grounds of having been brainwashed would have been completely extraordinary. After some weeks in custody, Patricia refuted her SLA allegiance. Her first lawyer, Terrence Hal... Hallinan, Hallinan, uh, her first lawyer, Terrence Hallinan, had advised Patricia not to talk to anyone, including psychiatrists. He advocated a defense of voluntary intoxication that the SLA had given her drugs that had affected her judgment and recollection. Later, he was replaced by attorney F. Lee Bailey. Do you know who that is? F. Lee Bailey was part of OJ's. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've heard the name. Yeah. Who declared a defense of coercion or duress affecting intent at the time of the offense. 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 Defense. (laughs) Offense. The time of the offense. This was a similar. This was similar to the brainwashing defense, which Hallinan had warned was not a defense in law. Patricia gave long interviews to various psychiatrists. Patricia was arraigned for the Hibernia bank robbery. The trial started on January 15, 1976. The judge ruled that Patricia's taped and written statements after the bank robbery while she was a fugitive with the SLA members were voluntary. So the judge was like, bullshit. Really? Bullshit on it, yeah. Wow. That's... So he did not allow expert testimony that statistic analysts indicated that Tanya statements, that they called them the Tanya statements, and writings were not completely composed by Patricia. So he denied these stylistic analysts who wow. based you yeah, know, based he, on he the way she wrote and it. spoke before to when she did after. He wow. permitted the prosecution to introduce statements and actions Patricia made long after the Hibernia, Hibernia robbery. I don't know what's my problem. <laughs> As evidence of her state of mind at the ro- time of the robbery, the judge also allowed into evidence a recording made by jail authorities of a friend's jail visit to Patricia in which she used profanities and spoke of her radical and feminist beliefs. But he did not allow tapes of psychiatrist Louis Jolyn West's interviews of Patricia to be heard by the jury. It was like totally crooked. Well, that's interesting because I wonder when those jailhouse tapes were like before she but said was, she was n- that she like regretted it all and all that or after. You know? Yeah, I don't know. But I mean... Because she, if she was still brainwashed at that point. Yeah, yeah. The judge was described as, quote, unquote, quote, resting his eyes, unquote, during the testimony favorable to the defense by West and others. <laughs> According to Patricia's testimony, her captors had demanded she appear enthusiastic during the robbery and warned she would pay with her life if for any mistakes. Her defense lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, provided photographs showing that SLA members included, including Camilla Hall, had pointed guns at Patricia during the robbery. 
In reference to the shooting at Mel's Sporting Goods store and her decision not to escape, Patricia testified that she was instructed throughout her captivity on what to do in an emergency. She said one class in particular had a situation similar to the store manager's detention of the Harrises. Patricia testified that when it happened, I didn't even think I just did it. If I had not done it and they had been able to get away, they would have killed me. Testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Harry Kotzel and Patricia said Patricia had been a rebel in search of a cause and her participation. <laughs> And her participation in the Hibernia robbery had been an act of free will. Prosecutor James L. Browning Jr. asked the other psychiatrist testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Joel Fort, if Patricia was in fear of death or greatly bodily or great bodily injury during the robbery, to which she answered no. Bailey, her lawyer, Bailey. Her lawyer angrily objected. Dr. Fort assessed Patricia as a aim as amoral and said she had voluntary voluntarily had sex with Wolf and DeFreeze, which Patricia denied both in court and outside. Prosecutor Browning tried to show that writings by Patricia indicated her testimony had misrepresented her interactions with Wolf. She said she had been writing the SLA version of events and had been punched in the face by William Harris when she refused to be more lavish about what she regarded as sexual abuse by Wolf. The judge allowed testimony from the prosecution psychiatrist about Patricia's early sexual experience, although these had occurred years before her kidnapping and bank robbery. That's such bullshit. That is bullshit. In court, Patricia made and gave a bad impression on the jury and judge and appeared lethargic. An Associated Press report attributed this state to drugs she was given in jail uh, by the doctors, the the jail doctors. Wow. Bailey was strongly criticized for his decision to put Patricia on the stand, then having her repeatedly decline to answer questions. So according to Alan Dershowitz, Bailey was outmaneuvered by the judge. The judge appeared to indicate Patricia would have a Fifth Amendment amendment privilege, the jury would not be present for some of her testimony or would be instructed not to draw references on matters subsequent to the Hiberian Bank charges for which she was being tried. But he changed his mind after she took the stand. Patricia said her memoir in her memoir, I spent 15 hours going over my SLA experiences with Robert J. Lifton of Yale University. Lifton, author of several books of coercion, persuasion, and thought reform, pronounced me a classic case which met all the psychological criteria of a coerced prisoner of war. If I had reacted differently, that would have been suspect, he said. After Patricia testified that Wolf had raped her, Emily Harris gave a magazine interview from jail, saying that Patricia's keeping of a trinket given to her by Wolf was an indication that she had been in a romantic relationship with him. Patricia said she had kept the stone carving because she had thought it was a pre-Columbian artifact of archaeological significance. The prosecutor Hmm. used Emily Harris's interpretation of the item. Some jurors later said that they regarded the carving, which Browning waved in front of them, as as powerful evidence that Patricia was lying. In a closing prosecution statement that barely mentioned Patricia even being kidnapped and held captive, Prosecutor Browning suggested that Patricia had taken part in the bank robbery without coercion. In her autobiography, Patricia expressed disappointment with what she saw as her attorney, lack of focus at the crucial end stage of her trial. She described him as having the appearance of someone with a hangover, and spilling water down the front of his pants while he was making a disjointed closing argument. (laughs) Oh, boy. She was like, yeah, she didn't like him very much. Bailey's final statement to the court was, but simple application of the rules, I think, will yield one decent result. And that is 
There is not anything close to proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Patricia Hearst wanted to be a bank robber. What you know and you know in your hearts to be true is beyond dispute. There was talk about her dying and she wanted to survive. On March 20th, 1976, Patricia was convicted of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony. She was given the maximum sentence of possible of 35 years imprisonment, pending a reduction at final sentence hearing, which the judge wouldn't specify. On June 14th, so that was on March, in March of 76. In, on June 14th of 1976, Judge Oliver Carter died before he was able to issue Patricia's final sentencing. Oh, shit. Died of a heart attack. So Judge William H. Oreck, Jr. determined Patricia's sentencing. He gave her seven years imprisonment, commenting that a rebellious young that rebellious young people who, for whatever reason, become revolutionaries and voluntarily commit criminal acts will be punished. While Patricia was in prison, she suffered a collapsed lung, which began a series of medical problems and she underwent sur- emergency surgery. Her hospital stay prevented her from testifying against Harris, the Harrises on 11 charges, including robbery, kidnapping and assault all charges which she was also being arraigned for. She was held in solitary confinement for security reasons. She was granted bail for an appeal hearing in November of 1976 on the condition that she was protected on bond. Her father hired dozens of bodyguards. A superior court judge gave her probation for the sporting goods store charge when she pleaded no contest, saying that he believed that she had been subject to coercion amounting to torture. Patricia's bail was revoked in May of 1978 when her appeals failed and the Supreme Court declined to hear her case. The prison took no special security measures for her safety until she found a dead rat in her bunk on the day when William and Emily Harris were being arraigned for their abduction, for her abduction. The Harrises were convicted on simple kidnapping charges because she wasn't able to testify, as opposed to the more serious kidnapping for ransom, kidnapping with bodily injury, and they were released after serving a total of eight years each. Oh, shit. U.S. Representative Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition for Patricia's release. He was a California uh, representative several weeks before he was murdered while visiting Jonestown Settlement in Ghana. Oh, my God. That whole Jonestown thing. So an interesting thing about that, actor John Wayne spoke after the Jonestown cult deaths, pointing out that people had accepted that Jim Jones, the head of Jonestown, Mm -hmm. had brainwashed 900 individuals into a mass suicide, but wouldn't accept that the... Symbionese libertarian army could have brainwashed and kidnapped a teenage girl. Right, exactly. So I was like, that was smart of him to say that. How old was she when she was kidnapped? Do you remember? Um, 19? I'm pretty sure she was 19. Yeah, because she was a sophomore in college. Psychiatrist Louis Jolene West, a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, was appointed by the court in his capacity as a brainwashing expert and worked without a fee. After the trial, he wrote a newspaper article asking... President Carter to release Patricia from prison. President Jimmy Carter commuted Patricia's federal sentence to the 22 months served, freeing her for eight months before she was able for her first parole hearing. Her release on February 1st, February 1st, 1975, was under stringent conditions, and she remained on probation for the state sentence on the on the sporting goods store plea. She recovered full civil rights when President Bill Clinton granted her a pardon on January 20th, 2001, his last day in office. Oh, wow. Two months after her release from prison, Patricia married Bernard Lee Shaw, a policeman who was part of her security detail during her time on bail. They had two children. Patricia became involved in foundation in a foundation helping children with AIDS and is active in other charities and fundraising activities. It is said that Patricia Hearst Shaw, almost 70 years old now, lives in New York and Connecticut, and her husband died at age 68. Wow. So what do you think? Do you think she was brainwashed? Or? You know, I, I don't know that she had much of a choice. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I feel like I mean, there's parts of me that think she wasn't brainwashed. But then there's other parts where, you know, when she says that when she says, you know, they said that I had to act into the in through the in, <laughs> into the epic when she said I had to act. I had to act enthusiastic. And she said I had to be, you know, this way. They told me to say that. They told me to say this. Yeah. And, then, and then those that um, I forget the name of it now. I just closed my computer. But the the that specialist, the analyst who said that her 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 speech her language and such was not like it was before. Yeah, that's really weird. And the fact that she had lost all that weight. Yeah, that's really like, weird. Like that's not somebody that's living that's a lavish living, lifestyle right, or and healthy. A, yeah, a happy yeah. lifestyle. So it's a crazy story and I mean there there's been a couple of movies on it. Yeah, I saw um, I saw something at some point about it. Yeah, it's like it's I mean you, so I was born in 68. So this was like all happening when I was a baby, like when I was little. I don't remember any of it on TV. I'm sure my could have been my, you. My parents <laughs> It could have been me, um, except I didn't go to college until I was like 40. So, um, yeah, but it was it was um, I mean, I'm sure my parents remember it very well because it was a huge story. Yeah, I know. And at that time, like there was so many bombings and explosions going around around the, going on around the country. And there was like all these like like guerrilla groups and stuff yeah, in the United States, yeah. which is crazy. Um, and they didn't know like mental health wasn't a thing back then. So no, they not didn't all. believe that somebody could actually be like brainwashed like that. Well, there was all these psychiatrists that testified saying that, yes, she absolutely. Yeah, was nobody believed them. But yeah, but the judge was like, oh, no, that's yeah, not right. true. Yeah. yeah. No, that can't yeah. happen. I'm, I know everything. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was anyway, good. Pretty good story. I know. Good job. All Very right. proud of you. Well, we're such a big girl now. I am a big girl. <laughs> big daddy. <laughs> I'm so tired. Like my, my contacts are like dry. I'm like ready to go to nap. Why is it tired? But I don't know. It's I don't know. It's 630. It's 630. I feel like it's like, I feel like it's like 1030 for sure. So maybe it was the two drinks. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Did we have two? I thought we just. Oh yeah. We had one earlier. Yeah. We only had two. We didn't have any more than two. Yeah, we can't do that in record because yeah, we well, gets, found that out last time. <laughs> yeah, and it gets stuffy in this room and it makes me feel a little lightheaded. I'm like, I'm breathing too much oxygen. Re breathing on too much CO2 or whatever it is. I don't know. No. Yeah, there's no vent. There's no vent here, so it's die. pretty stuffy. So, Well, that was fun. We hope you enjoy fun. this episode. Please, so, please follow, please follow and like us on. and leave a review. <laughs> please like, follow, share. On No Ordinary Women Pod on Facebook and Instagram, and No Ord O R D Women Pod on Twitter, and you can go to our Facebook I'm um, our Facebook page and like, comment, share, and Instagram as well. And also, we have a website called No Ordinary Women Pod dot com. <laughs> and I created also, the website, so. and then you can follow us on. We're on Apple. We're on. Uh, Google Podcast. We're on Amazon Podcast. Spotify. Spotify. I don't know what else we're on. Some people listen to us on Alexa. Alexa, but that's like I think that's through Spotify. Oh, is that okay? Yeah. So it depends. Well, you can also listen through. It depends on what your what music you have downloaded to Alexa. So if I ask Alexa to Alexa to play it, she would play it through um, my Amazon Prime Music. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's so, what we have too. But my, like, my mom has her sped, set up on her um, on her Spotify account oh, to play I didn't music know through that. her Alexa. Fancy. So, yeah. So yeah. So follow us. Please, please, please leave a review and a rating. Share um, with all really your friends. Tell yes, them how freaking funny we are and how we can't talk. 
Yeah, and how, God. how much trouble Lynn has talking. I'm having a hard time tonight, that's for sure. Rose is going to curse me out when she goes to edit tonight because yeah, I made edit, a lot this, of mistakes. This edit, this, this um, episode is going to be awful to edit because we are off the rails. I know. I don't know what's wrong with us tonight. So, All right, All right well, y'all. Thanks have for a listening. Happy, have a happy Thursday and Friday, and we'll see you next week. Toodles. Toodles. Bye.